Welcome to the Championship Club podcast. I'm your host, Michael Casey, and co-hosting with me is a man with over 300 Championship Rugby appearances. It's Ben Gulliver. Be sure to check us out on social media at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and head to YouTube to like and subscribe to the channel. Before we kick off today's episode, I'd like to say a big thank you to our brand new and shiny sponsor, Trojan Engineering Fabrication, part of the MFH Group, and you can check them out at mfhire.co.uk. Hello and welcome to this week's Championship Clubs podcast with the returning co-host Ben Gulliver and myself, Gareth Allred, stepping in for the usual host, Michael Casey, who seems to unfortunately have more stag dues in this COVID period than rugby matches. Um, so I'm going to try my best to uh, to talk our way through this and we've got some great guests coming up later. But Gull, you were uh, away in Cornwall sunning yourself last week. How was your holiday? Mate, it was, it was superb. We got very, very lucky with the weather. Uh, we were down down in Porth Tower Managed to catch up with a few of the ex-Pirates boys that I played with. Um, we had uh, met up with Sam Betty, who had a, a stellar career in the uh, Pirates and then went on to kick on and play over 100 games for Worcester. So it was good to catch up with him and see how he's transitioned out of the game and set up his own gym down in Cornwall. And he's, he's flying. It was so nice to see him. Touch base with Chris Morgan. I mentioned Morgan's a lot on here, but living down here again now, it's great to catch up with those guys and see what's going on at Pirates and sort of see how they're planning and also just have a, a general chit-chat around life. We were with um, Saracens Royalty on the women's front. We had Poppy Cleo with us as well, which was great fun. Uh, and, and George, Georgie Evans, which was fantastic. So we had, we had a great week. Um, so like, apologies for not making the pod last week. But I had a listen back this morning, Gareth. And uh, I think Mike's got a little bit to worry about, to be honest, because uh, you, you were superb. And I don't normally pump your tyres, but I actually thought it was uh, Gareth Allred's team of the year was very good. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thanks, Carl. Yeah. But, we've um, we've got to move on from that goal because uh, I, I permanently want Mike to keep the job and I am not sitting into this very often, I can assure you. So uh, we're going to talk about what the main voice of the championship is right now, and that is promotion for Saracens, um, beating Ealing across two legs comprehensively and sealing their, their rightful place in my eyes back in the premiership. Um, unfortunately, all the players are, I think, on the piss for uh, probably two weeks, uh, apart from those lads who've got Alliance, Alliance tours to worry about. Uh, so I'm delighted we've been joined by the Saracens Chief Community Officer, uh, Gordon Banks. Welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah, nice to see you. Hey, Gordon. Great, great hey, to have you on. Yeah, it's, um, it's great to have someone representing Saracens on, especially after um, such a superb year and, and week in the last two weeks against Ealing. Um, could you just, uh, just give us a little bit of an insight into your role at the club and sort of your journey with Saracens uh, from when you joined a long time ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've um, I, I've been been at the club for quite a while, so actually over eighteen years, um, which I guess was never part of the, the plan necessarily. But I've, but I've had such a wonderful time. So I, I came in to um, to head up our foundation, which is an important part of our of our club, um, and had the privilege of 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 helping to grow grow the, the charity quite considerably over over a number of years. And then the role has really just grown and evolved. And so, so I, I became very involved in the stadium uh, project um, uh, uh, with, with a real focus on creating a, a community stadium and, and an asset. Um, and, uh, and I've continued to kind of manage some of our key strategic partners, such as local council and, and driving, driving those relationships. Um, now I sit on the executive board, uh, managing some key strategic partnerships, including you know this past year with, with the championship, which has been great, um, but also overlooking also our strategic communications. Um, so it's a rather rather broad role, but but a real real fun one. It's going to be very broad role with this, the size of the club, and obviously I've got quite a link up there with with Georgie playing for the women's side for 
the last five seasons and then retiring and seeing seeing um, Sonic or Sonia Green moving into the school as a coach. And, you know, you've got your Saracen school, you've got your foundation, you've got all sorts of that. Is that part of your role as managing managing that side of it? It is, yeah. No, I, I, I was um, um, with, with a couple of other people at the club involved with, with creating the idea for the school um, way back when. And, and, and I guess that was built off the relationship with our local council and understanding they needed a couple of new secondary schools locally. So a real privilege and, and really interesting and challenging project to, to develop uh, the Saracens Multi-Academy Trust um, and, and the Saracens High School coming out of that. Really looking for some brilliant staff, including Sonia, so people that know the club well, who are brilliant educationalists, um, operating about a mile and a half from here in, in, in the most disadvantaged community in Barnet and, and doing a brilliant job. So, um, yeah, so, so that's what, what, one part of, of my role. I'm now a trustee of the, of the multi-academy trust and, um, um, yeah, very much still involved. I've got to bring you back to obviously the rugby and the past 18 months. Uh, it's obviously just been a, a crazy time for Saracens. Um, it has for everybody, but but from the depth of despair um, to then obviously maybe the relief of promotion last weekend. Just just talk us in a very quick nutshell about you know where you've gone, where you've what you've come through, and where you are now. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and keep it brief because you you could you know you could talk about it for a long time. It's, it's been a I guess obviously we had pre-pandemic, we, we had a difficult period um, with, with the salary cap and, and with the relegation. And, and I think you know we got in a position there where we, we um, accepted we made some mistakes, was very keen to move on. And, and ultimately what we what we decided is we, we, we didn't want to look externally, we wanted to focus internally on the organisation and make sure that we came out of came out of it as a better organisation on and off the pitch. So that was a, a key driver. I, I guess we decided that we... You know, we looked at our values. We we hadn't been true maybe to, to, to one two of them, and 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 but we decided that that we needed to go back to them because we ultimately we were confident that it was the values that had got us to where we were and nothing else. And so we so we we did that, um, and then just worked really hard. And then the pandemic came as it did for all of us and threw some extra challenges in there. But by that stage, we we'd already we were on a path to, to wanting to become a better organisation, and we knew what we wanted to do. So um, I guess guys, you've been in certain meetings. You know, that maybe the most challenging element of it all was just the uncertainty of the period. So clearly with a goal to, to try and get back to the Premiership, but with no certainty as to whether the league will start, what it will look like, how many games, would there be government <clears throat> loans and support or not? Would it, you know, would it happen? If not, what would happen to Saracens? And, and um, so it was, it was tricky. It, it was scenario planning after scenario planning. Um, and, um, but, but relief is a very good phrase. We, we, <laughs> We were to get. I mean, I was, you know. Then we had, the, you know, we had the heartbreat cancellation and the risk of COVID. And what if, what if, yeah. what if the finals didn't happen? We're sat in second because of that. And so it just felt like one challenge after another. Um, but we were relieved and, and obviously very proud of, of what the team had put on the pitch for for the, for the two weeks. You know, that you know was was super impressive, really, wasn't it? Yeah. There's a lot of planning previous, like before the before the league started, and you've 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 planned all these scenarios and everything sort of in place. And you think, right, we'll get out to pirates, do a job on them, and you get one straight on the nose. <laughs> how was that? How did you react from that? <laughs> you, you know, it, what was it? Was it was it the best thing that could have happened? I'm not quite sure, um, but it certainly was a wake up call. Um, and 
you know, and what it was, and what it told us if we didn't know it already, and I think we did, we did know it, but we, you know, it, it reminded us that there's some very, very good rugby players and some good rugby teams in the championship, and, and we we learned that throughout the season, and we we always respected it, and and and, and we knew because we've got plenty of guys that have, as you know, have spent time in the, in the championship, so we kind of knew what to expect, um, and obviously we went to Pirates with, with not our strongest team, but we felt, you know, like everybody looking at it on paper, it should have been strong enough, but it was a it was a wake up call. Um, I think uh, I think the forwards realised that the, the scrum was maybe a bit more important than it is in the Premiership and, and um, spent some hours there. Um, and that following game, Jersey at home, all of a sudden became, you know, a really, really must win. And we still had players missing, and and it was that was an anxious week uh, ahead of that game, and that was a, that was a very anxious week, and we we penciled in some time on Monday morning for what ifs, you know, what if what if we don't we don't win that, where 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 do we stand there? So um, yeah, a bit of anxiety, bit of, bit of, bit of anxiety in that game uh, and, and that week. Um, it's, it's fascinating, it's fascinating for me as as sort of watching Saracens and the the, the games you've played in, the big games, and the the anxiety going into a European Cup final or into a Prem semi-final and then you're, you're, you're planning for a what-if in the championship in the second game of the season which is something I imagine nobody would ever been in a meeting like that at Saracen especially in your time there. No, and um, and a different type of pressure, you know. And, and I think you know when when we look back, I mean, obviously, I, because of COVID and everything else, not as much time at the training ground. But I know, you know, for some of those guys, a lot of young guys involved in the early games, as well as some experienced guys, but but a, a totally different type of pressure, and arguably much more important games. You know, you take these last two, even that Jersey game. All of a sudden, these are some of the most important games in the club's history. Um, and it's you know, you, you go in a final, you want to win a final, you prepare, and of course, you've got to be. You don't win, but but it's not um, it's not uh, existence threatening um, if you, if you don't win them. But some of these games have had a lot riding on them, so a very different experience for us. How was that? I guess asking from the player point of view is difficult, but the England internationals coming back in seemed to slot slotted in very well. But I'm just thinking of a, a tight end that's won a Rugby World Cup uh, not long long before who. Uh, probably puts a lot of international players on the back foot and then has to go to Pirates and gets knocked off himself as well as Jersey, to be fair. I mean, that must be, like you say, that pressure must be so different and almost not expecting it in some ways. I mean, I'm, I, I absolutely agree that you didn't, there's no disrespect to the league and, and everybody planned very well, but it, it must just be a completely different um, experience to playing at the Menai in front of no one, uh, considering 80,000 at a World Cup final. <laughs> very, very different. And, and, and so, you know... And I, they knew, you know, to a degree, they, they knew what they were in for. They knew going down to the Menai, they're going to have a big pack, they're going to scrimmage well, they're going to do certain things really well, and they're going to be up for it in a big way. And of course, every game, that was the other bit, you know, everyone's probably giving five or 10% extra because it's, it's a big scalp and, and everyone's up for it those first 20 minutes, you know what's coming. Um, but then to lose that game and then um, and to have a tough, you know, tough encounter with Jersey, you know, you start asking questions that you weren't expecting, I think. So... But then you know you go back, you, you go back, and, and, and the team, you know, they've got a strong culture there. They work extremely hard, brilliant coaching team, and ultimately, um, you know, that came through. Um, and, and I think some of our guys have learned a lot for the experience. Some of the young guys will be much better for it. Um, but relieved, relieved that um, we were able to strengthen. You know, that, that the England guys come back in, and and that, to be fair, Gareth, they're always they're always brilliant when they come back into camp. You know, they they, they love playing with their mates. They're, they're very tight group. They always come back in with energy, um, whatever the situation is with the team at the time, always keen to put Saracen's shirt back on. Um, and obviously they had a job to do when they came back in this time. Um, Absolutely. They did it really well. 
We're just going to talk a little bit about off the field as well, Gordon. And just we've been in some of the same meetings as you said uh, for the championship clubs. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience of the championship? Uh, there's a, there's a tough one, uh, and also I guess what we need to address as the league. Yeah, no, look, I, I really enjoyed it actually, and, and you know, and we we a lot of meetings, a lot of early morning meetings, a lot of Saturday morning meetings for a period of time with with the committee. Um, really difficult, right? Because you've got 11 clubs in really different circumstances. You know, we're over here with the, these challenges and issues and priorities, and you've got other clubs in very different circumstances. So getting agreement and, and, and getting people on the same page was not easy and, and isn't easy. And, and, um, and, and particularly in a pandemic where clubs are, are being forced to look internally rather than the bigger picture because they're, just, they're desperate to drive some revenue. You're getting different decisions and arguably at times, you know, maybe not the right decisions because every club is trying to drive their agenda and their priorities rather than looking at the bigger picture. So, but, you know, good people, good rugby people who are doing the right thing, trying to do the right thing for their, for their, for their clubs, some brilliant clubs. I mean, you know, selfishly, I know I'm talking about selfishly, really we're looking forward to going away to games going and visiting clubs spending time with people at clubs the players were looking forward to that aspect of it we wanted to give as much as we could um uh in terms of adding value wherever we could we were kind of denied some of that by not being able to go away so we're really gutted about that because we, we were looking forward to that but i think hopefully in these meetings we i hope i provided a a different view at times and, and, a, and a different um, approach, maybe. Um, but I enjoyed the challenge and I enjoyed the, the conversation. And, and although at times it was difficult, um, overall my experience was a, was a really positive one. And, and from, from Gordon, uh, do, you, do you think so? Now moving out into the into the Premiership, will is there anything that you feel that as a group the, the Championship clubs could could do to? To help, you know, I don't know, bring bring a bit more spotlight onto the league, or you know, improve improve things. Like, what what would be your recommendations? I don't know if you can you can say it, but you know, I'm going to ask the question anyway. Would be any recommendations for the league? Well, I'm always careful, you know, not you know, in, in terms of giving a view. I, I, Gareth knows fundamentally one of the key things I've been trying to round home, and, and I say it's very difficult to do it, but um, I feel the championship needs to start talking and, and making decisions as a league mm. and, and, and not as 11 or 12 uh, or however many individual individual clubs. The, the challenging position is, is that nobody really is driving a league-wide approach and clearly going forward, the, the championship needs to strive for sustainability and, and that's at the moment really challenging. Mm -hmm. But that can only come with um, an improved commercial position for the league and, and, and I don't think at the moment the championship as, as, a, as an entity understands its position in, 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 in the game domestically. I don't think it really has done enough work to, to highlight its real strengths and unique attributes that it has because they, 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 it has got it. You know, as, there's some great rugby, but there's, there's also some, some wonderful clubs and some real unique attributes that I think we, the league needs to shine a light on and find its, find its position. And then there needs to be a commercial program that, that supports that broadcast sponsorship, um, league-wide approach to ticketing, not just each club trying to fight their own 
and grow their own audience. It needs to try and grow the, a broader audience, and it can only do that from a you know a more centralised platform. I say that I think the Premiership are starting to understand that themselves, and that would be something I think they still need to do. And uh, and other sports have done it better. I think cricket have done it better across the board in terms of some of the, the new leagues and competitions that they've that they've organised. You know, they've taken a, a game approach um, and created a product that they know that TV and sponsorship will want. And, and at the moment, each individual championship club is, is, is creating a squad and bringing it together in a format. Not really. There's nobody selling what the central league is. What what is the championship and, and what is its place? Good, and you you've answered one of the questions I was probably going to ask, and I know that me and you could could talk about this all all day. Uh, uh, and I don't think any of the podcast listeners will want us on all day. But the uh, I guess two things. One, does the Premiership not have these problems as well? You know, those twelve owners, chairman, CEOs, whoever's around that table. Um, you know, what can we learn from that environment? And then secondly, everything you said, which I completely agree with, um, main difference seems to be a private organisation called PRL running um, the Premiership and then the RFU, uh, the governing body, uh, not necessarily with all of those skill sets running the Championship. So, you know, I uh, hate to force you on it, but, but, but is that not one of the real problems then? Because we haven't got a commercially minded focused team looking after the Championship. I, I think, you know, my, my personal view and my personal view is, is that the game in England needs a strong second tier um, and to get that all stakeholders need to be on the same page and be working together and, and I, I include the RFU, PRL, Championship um, in that and, and I know there's been a lot more conversations and meetings of those three parties recently and I think there are some positive steps that have been taken forward um, but I, I, I think there's a way to go uh, until we're in a position where we can we can be comfortable that the championship is sustainable and has a um, and has a sustainable model in place. Um, so I, th I think that's going to take you know a little while um, to, to, to get there, and, and you know next season is, is coming upon us really quickly. Yeah. And, I, and as you know, I, I think focus has got to be on you know, and, and I know there's some important conversations and meetings over the next few weeks. Um, and out of that, hopefully, we can get everybody on the same page uh, and create a sustainable future for for all those parties and and um, create a little bit more certainty. I think it's, it's yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think these discussions, well, I know these discussions have been going on for many years and there's been changing parties, you know, from the days of FR1 encouraged leagues when Nigel Ray and Jeff Irvine were around the table to to, to more recent times, Mark McCafferty and, and, and different members of the RFU. So uh, unfortunately, we, we've been on this journey for some time and uh, I think think you're right. Actually, what we're getting to is more of a melting pot of um, the decision is going to be forced one way or the other. So we need to get on board. Just just on that, Gordon, I've got to ask, and, and you know it's coming um uh, but one of the biggest challenges and differences is obviously the funding uh you know millions of pounds pumped into those premiership clubs and obviously yourselves coming down into league albeit you had a very difficult journey um versus you know our funding of 150 grand this year um to to try and even get a team on the field to compete with saracens let alone ealing um, you know, surely we're, we're we're probably missing the you know ring fencing is the facet everybody's talking about, but aren't we aren't we missing the bigger issue here that it's, it's simply a funding issue? Yeah, I, 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 I go back to my previous point really in in the you know funding. I mean, clearly at the moment the championship clubs aren't receiving enough funding to to create a strong and sustainable second tier. Right. The but 
the question is where 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 should that funding be coming from? I think is and 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 for that funding to come forward, there needs to be a commercial model that is sustainable. And so it goes back to the point of and, and this is where I think that you know maybe the, the championship does need to grab hold of its assets and 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 understand its value and find its place so that it can commercialize those assets more effectively and drive more revenue in and, and create more sustainability. So so clearly, all parties have a role in this, all stakeholders, you know, the governing body, Premiership Rugby and the Championship. But I think I think the Championship needs to become more proactive, which it's starting to do in, in terms of creating that commercial model. As you said before, PRL, of, you know, there's a team there that is driving driving that league. Um, a kind of equivalent needs to be created, I, I, I think, to, to outside of the Championship Committee that takes a hold of... of the league's assets and and and, um, and moves the league forward and, and creates that sustainability. But as you know, as I said, all three partners need to be part of part of that work if if um, if that's going to be successful. So there could be a bit of hope for the league if that was to happen. You know, if I'm a player, I'm listening to this, and it's you know, it's a difficult time as a player, uh, not knowing where the league's going. And it sounds to me like there are the right people having the right conversations. But if the champ were to get hold and have a committee of people that could drive the commercial aspect, then there's there's a real possibility of a positive future for the league as opposed to the, the grim outlook that's been portrayed over the last few few weeks and months. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, listen, I, I'm, I'm a very optimistic person generally, you know, and, 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 and so and our experience this year is that the championship, there's some great clubs, there's some very good rugby players, there's some good rugby on offer. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you look, look, just look at the highlights of some, some of the games. So, and, 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 I, and I, think, I think we do need a strong second tier in, in, in this country. And, and um, you know, I, I won't get into <clears throat> promotion, relegation and those issues, you know, clearly out of the pandemic, we need to make, you know, clubs need to recover and, and, and get, into, get into a good position generally as, as a sport. We, we need to, we need to, um, but I think, um, but I think going forward, we need a strong second tier. There are some great clubs, and I think ultimately, I think we the championship will bounce back um, and um, and become that strong become that strong second tier. And then uh, if we move take it take it off a little bit less serious now. I <laughs> 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 see Gareth's face is going. I need to ask more questions. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't want to bore everyone, Gareth. So just sort of with, with promotion uh, and look forward for Saris. Um, yeah. You know, it's you've got a, an exciting time with with obviously getting promoted. You've got the guys away with the Lions. You've got 30 blokes on the piss that you need to keep an eye on. <laughs> for the, the, yeah. the, the, I'm not sure where they are right now. Um. <laughs> uh, is it? It's obviously an exciting time. You know, you'd, you'd be looking at the Prem final this weekend thinking, could be us and you know it must be really exciting times for Saris getting back in there and I suppose looking forward to Premiership Rugby again next season at, at Stonex. Yeah no it, it is um, you know we've um, as I said earlier you know, we, we, we've worked really hard to, to, to get ourselves into a position where um, I say we wanted to become a much better organisation coming come out, coming out of it uh, out of these challenges and, and I think you know off the pitch you know, we've we've managed to secure some brilliant new partners in Stonex City and Lex Shawbrook in, in a very tough in a very tough environment. So it's given us a lot of 
faith in, in the club and the brand and, and we've got some great partners castor we've just announced as our new kit partner so so commercially we're in we're in a good place where i look across the, the, the stand at the moment we're building a new west stand um which uh, which will be fantastic so the stadium uh, is, is is being improved um as we move forward uh, and we're looking to, to invest more in in what we're doing in terms of social impact off off the pitch through the foundation of the school so, so that's really exciting i think on the pitch of course i think in this last last period of the season the team have been very focused on of course winning the playoff but their mantra was was about being a better team than they were before you know that's their focus and although we've you know we've lost people see the england guys there and the lions players and think that nothing must has changed but the squad has changed quite a bit we've, we've lost quite a few players from last year but there's a lot of young guys coming through and, and they've been exposed this year and we're very excited about those some of those players coming through so yeah, we, we, of course, you know, we're looking forward to being underdogs, underdogs a bit in some of these games uh, going back in next year. Um, and, and that challenge, it's a fresh challenge. And I think people are really excited uh, about that. So, uh, yeah, we will want to be competitive um, and, and we're excited for that challenge next season, really. Gordon, I'm, I'm not sure if we're going to let you get away with underdog tags. I'm, uh, I, I'm not sure we can. I love that, but it's going to be a great season for you guys, and um, all, all of us in the plugs in at the end of the spot. Um, and thank you very much for joining us. We've always enjoyed great conversations uh, around this in the in the last season. So thank you very much, Gordon. It's it's a pleasure. No, really great to spend some time with you. Thanks, guys. Cheers, Gordon. Thanks very much. Thanks. You're listening to the Championship Clubs podcast with me, Michael Casey, and Ben Gulliver. Check us out on social media at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. So our next guest will need no introduction uh, to many championship fans, a uh, long-term director of rugby at at Nottingham in one of the most successful periods for the club in recent history, uh, before several coaching roles, London Irish, uh, most recently the Scarlets, but a trip back home to Canterbury and New Zealand and the Highlanders. Glenn Delaney, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, good to see you managed to get Gully on the on the line as well as our co-host. I think you tried to get him a few times up there at Nottingham, but uh, yeah. obviously, obviously he was waiting for the big call. Too expensive. He just was a big ticket item in those days. It was probably the, he was the premier lock in the competition. Although guys like Nick Rouse will probably never forgive me for saying it, but uh, he was too expensive for us. <laughs> so I call bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> No, good to see you, Glenn. It's uh, yeah. Thanks for coming on. I think when we, when we started this pod, um, you're one of the first people that came to mind, um, and I, I dropped you a message on LinkedIn, and it's uh, it's great to have you on because of your experience in the league. And we've just been talking just before we started recording about sort of your early experience of Championship rugby, and I just wondered, sort of, it's a pretty loaded question first up, but sort of where you see the league now, where it's come from, and where do you see it going in the future? Yeah, it's. Uh... Massive question because, you know, when I came into it, it was called First Division Rugby and we had 16 teams and it was a fairly disparate group of, you know, got, you know clubs trying to make their way Tuesday, Thursday night training and then um, you had the guys down in um, in, in the south, you know, Cornish Pirates and Plymouth who were just blasting away with some fabulous players and, you know, really sort of trying to change the way that the game was being run and, um, you know, then it went through the, the, the different iterations to get it down to being a 12-team league, which looked at the, at the time... Um, the, the absolute way forward it was going to mirror the, the the premiership and provide a place for that relegated side to to come and play and have good competitive rugby and i guess the vision was it was all going to be invested in and it would grow and 
yeah, it just looks like it hasn't. That sort of like original vision just seems to have fallen away. And I'd be really interested to know what the decision making is behind that. Because for me personally, you know, the number of players that came through the championship route um, via dual registration and, and went on to play for England, it really was serving the purpose. And, you know, there's some wonderful examples of, of guys who, who who did their time and, and learned to play and played hard and tough and, you know, um, got their chance to play in the premiership and made great careers out of it. And, you know, I think, you know, the worry for me is if that avenue is not there, then the only place you're relying on is those youngsters going into academies. And, you know, I, I look at guys like an Ed Slater who never went through an academy. You know, it, it, it's a guy from Milton Keynes who went to Australia and then came back and played in the championship. And next thing he's playing for Leicester and going great. So he's a fully signed up member of the 10-year veteran club, um, probably about 12 years knowing it, knowing Slater. But, you know, guys like that, how, how do they ever get a chance to get in and fulfil their dream? Because I think that's that's the one thing the championship was. We're a bunch of dreamers. You know, we're always ambitious. We were live, we just like wanted to know what was over the fence. The grass was always green. We're just trying to get there because we just wanted to, to experience it. And coaches as well, you know, look, we were no different. And, um, you know, I have a huge affinity with all the lads that put in the hard yards, the mileage. And you can even see that now still. Still, even if you look at Exeter, look at Rob. And, and Rob came through that route himself. And if you look at the players he's brought in, some of those boys have had a huge grounding. And you look at Harry Williams and Tommy Francis and Jack Yandel. And, you know, the, the list goes on. Even Ben Moon was in the championship. You know, you, you look at that. But you look at those guys, they they earned their spurs. And um, I just worry that if if it's not the competition that it was, how are those guys going to find their way through? And is that going to just narrow down the the gene pool of characters that um, professional rugby has? So, you know, look, I've seen it, I've seen, you know, right, right from the start, from the cradle, and then it was peaking. And um, you know, what I hope is it's not heading towards growth. Yeah, we were we were lucky, weren't we? Well, I, I kind of look back in rose tinted glasses a little bit at that time in the league because it was it was well funded. The money, the money was all right, wasn't it? The money was pretty good for players. Yeah, I mean, awesome. I mean, gee, I'd love, love your contract. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could have that contract now, believe me. Uh, but um, yeah, so just sort of, it was it was a great time to be involved with the league, wasn't it? When it when it was um, when it went down to twelve, and we went into the eight eight league eighteen playoff. Then it went down to four, and you know your time at Nottingham there, you had some great boys. I just thought. You know those lads that are in that squad, and you know you still you're still in contact with those guys, and you, yeah. you must be proud to see sort of some of them kicking on in their coaching career as well, like Sir Rousey and, and Hammer. I know it's, uh, it makes you feel bloody old when you start seeing the players you coach down to coach. It's like, hang on a minute, I still think I'm a kid. Um, <laughs> but yeah, look, probably the probably the best part for me is you know those guys they're all still friends, and yeah, we put. Yeah, you know, we talk about not not even isolating. I think all the clubs were similar. Everyone had their own culture and their own values and the way they operated. But what you did was you created a really tightness, a real tightness of, of camaraderie. And you know, those boys are all still great mates. And um, the banter flies up every now and then. You know, we had Australian halfback named Tim Usas, who was gee whiz, he was uh, well. We did a test on him. He was thirty three and zero on the extroversion scale. He just is not a, not an ounce of it wasn't nothing. It was all all being said. Um, so, you know, big characters like that that drove the energy of the team. And, and I think that's probably the one thing that's lasting for me is that, that those boys are all still in touch. Um, they want to hang out together. They want to, you know, get together for the reunions. And I think that's what the championship really brought is, 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 you know, it's tough. It's tough living. And a lot of the boys weren't making, you know, ends meet. It was it was really hard going. Some guys were, were obviously doing well. So it's quite a lot of disparity there. But the one thing that bound them was come kick off. They were all in, one in, all in. And uh, they, they played hard on the field. And I think, and I'm led to believe that they played pretty hard off it too. <laughs> you did nothing to do with that. <laughs> I, no, never involved, never invited. <laughs> <laughs> 
Flynn, just tell us a little bit about that that Nottingham time then as well. Uh, uh, all the way from FDR, I could get lost listening to you really about, about that history period as well. But, you know, I was working at other clubs even in that time. I remember some bloody good sides, that, you know, getting James Arledge back from the Dragons, um, mm-hmm. Callum Mafoni going on to, to great things even. He was about 50 then, wasn't he, when he was playing for you and he, he still had premiership in him. So just tell us a little bit about that time and circle going back to be head coach at Nottingham. Yeah, so, so when I, I went in there as a... Um, originally a player coach and just never managed to do the playing part because I was a bit busted. And uh, Simon Beatham, who's one of my great mates, we played together as youngsters at Leicester and he was the DOR there and um, you know, I came and just to coach the forwards on a Tuesday, Thursday night and you know, sort of a year into that, that was about 2003, four, and uh, a year into that, then Simon got promoted and um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a pretty bright guy and uh, you know, he, he went off into the business world and um, they said, would you want to do the, the DOR job? I was like, hell yeah, I love that. Um, so Simon stayed and he was he was always part of the coaching crew. We went through a lot together. Gary Reese, who was an ex-Nottingham sort of legend of, of par, he was the link back to Alan Davis's great team, which had Hodgie and um, Chris Ote and Brian Moore, Rob Andrew, uh, pretty pretty good guys, Chris Gray, um, the big block. And so Reese was a bit of a, a connection to there. And, 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 and I guess all we were ever trying to do in the club's sense was live up to what Alan had done with that group of guys because he, he's the best coach the club's ever had. And it was like, well, if we can get partway towards what he did, then we might, we might have done a decent job. Um, but Simon and I, you know, and, and Reese, he'd been there right away. Through. We've been in that club a long time. And, um, you know, the key thing about Nottingham was, was uh, I might be a New Zealander, but, you know, Nottingham, Nottingham's always been you know, a great club for me and, and, a, and, a, and a home. And they took me in and made a home and it had a, had a rhythm and it had a sort of a, uh, just, I just felt kind of a home. I guess you get that feeling and reminded me of clubs, you know, my, my club living back in New Zealand reminded me a bit of that. So we sort of went off and I played for them for a couple of years in the, in the, in the 90s and we weren't great then. And then I went off and, and then came, you know, Simon said, will you come back and coach? And I was like, oh, okay, sure. So it was a, a first step back out of playing into the coaching sort of world. And coaching was something I always wanted to do. Never necessarily thought I would. I was working and coaching part-time. And then um, Simon left and it sort of all went full, you know, went full-time. So I was like, right, okay, what do we want to do? And, and we had this new chairman and, and who was quite ambitious. And I was like, well, this this could, could take off, could go somewhere. We've got to do a few things. So, yeah, we had no medical provision. We were really on the bones of our backsides. So you know, nothing, it was nothing in situ. So... I basically got a clean sheet and we, went, we moved grounds within a year to play at Meadow Lane and that was sort of the shift change for us. So we had a massive stadium that we didn't get many in, but we had the opportunity to be aspirational. And that stadium, you know, we had a couple of tester cases. So Quins were down at Island Avenue, we got 6,000 for that or whatever it was. And then Northampton in the championship, we got sort of six and a half, seven thousand 7,000 to that game. It was like, well, Jeepers, okay. Well, if we have high-end rugby here, then we think people will come and watch because Nottingham's that sort of city, loves its sport. So we had the aspiration and we always had the carrot dangling and we just thought, I just thought we're just going to go for this. So it was really about putting structure in behind it and, you know, a performance team and, and you know, the, the, the medic and the S&C guy, you know, those guys, the manager, the bus driver, they were all with us for the whole eight years that I was here. The, the team was unchanged behind the scenes, so we had a lot of continuity. And in fact, our, uh, our kit man, Dave Jones, is still there now. As, uh, I think he's still 2IC kit man. He never wanted to be number one. He's always, but, you know, we know Jonesy, he's... His heart and soul, that place. So, you know, we had a lot of continuity and um, it was chasing the dream. It really was. And we managed to get a group of guys together and a lot of it came from the England County's environment where Craig Hammond, who's, who's going back to be the, the, the head coach now, he'd uh, been the captain of the England County. So we had guys like Nick Rouse came in and Paul Arnold came came across. David Wilkes came um, came across uh, from, from Oral. And um, then we, we latched onto a few other Kiwi boys. So Tim Molinar and Joe Duffy came and, 
Matt Parr came and, and, and all of a sudden we, we started to put this team together. Nigel Hall and then later on Jimmy Arledge came, Juan Ceceno came and Kieran Hallett came up from Plymouth, some goal kickers and just started to sort of take off. And then we found a guy named Tim Strether playing for yeah. Nottingham University, eating his crunchy nut cereal. So he, he, he turned up on a quarter game and well, you're not getting anything more than that. So he's playing of the year at the end of the year the way because he's that good. So we, we, we were we were that that sort of core of guys and dual registration came along just at the right time. And because I was part of the, the working group that, that, that helped sort of do the strategy on it, I kind of knew how it worked. So at one stage, I think we had 26 dual registered players on the books, which included Manu Tulangi probably and uh, George Ford. Um, they never played for us. And I think Exeter might have got wind of that. So it was like, Jesus. So we had we had access to a lot of really great kids. So when you bolted, and I know there's there's a bit of a crossover between Bedford and us with with um, Tommy Youngs and Dan Cole, those guys sort of play for both clubs. Billy Twelvetrees played for both. Um, and sort of later on, Tom converted to hooker. So we did that with us. I think he was playing centre with you guys. Um, so we had those sorts of guys coming in and spending a lot of time. The first Jewel Ridge player we had was Matt Smith, at least, and he spent a full season with us. And he was outstanding. Him and Tim Molinar as a midfield was pretty frightening. Um, up until he played the Fatty Loafer brothers at Exeter, that's pretty frightening. <laughs> so um, we, we managed to marry this culture of these hardworking, some Kiwi boys, some Northern boys, and, and everyone was from Nottingham. That's, that's who they were. They were born in other places with these young up-and-coming Jewel Ridge guys. And the, the, the trick to those guys, and the guys that came, their attitude was spot on. So if it took, I remember Tom Tom saying once he'd never, ever think of wearing any Leicester gear to Nottingham because he just knew that just A, wasn't right, and B, he'd get rinsed. So that was that. And, and like Colby came back in the, in the second or third year and needed a couple of runs just after surgery. So he, he came back with his team shirt from the year before, hung it on his coat, and he said, I've got my gear, I'm all good. So they knew the environment. And um, you know, even when Ali Williams came up and played for us from New Zealand on his rehab before the Tourlingham World Cup, he, he got put in his place by the boys. And it was no, it was it was ruthless. And that was the culture they had. So they drove it and they were ambitious. I was ambitious and we we're all setting off on on this little journey. So um, yeah, some of the best memories I've got have come from that time. Mate, I've just I've just got now memory lane, just thinking of all that. It's it's what what a list of names that you you had you had there. And I, I've sort of forgotten about about him a bit. And we had Young on the pod early on and he he spoke so highly of, of Nottingham and then you know, I'm thinking from when I'd have been at Pirates or Plymouth, and you, you only play each other twice a year, don't you? And you think yeah. they're all dickheads. <laughs> and that's yeah. Go shut a Rousey for 80 minutes, think he's a dickhead. That, he's a really good bloke, and I get on with him really well. <laughs> yeah, that's because you're too similar to Perry. And, 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 but that was the point. You know, you know, how many guys you know, had that level of talent? And look, there was one really nice thing, you know, great thing that, that was said. Nick Rouse came to London Irish, and I managed to get him down there, and they're looking at him, and he, you know, Gee, but you don't look like an athlete, but you know, he gets through a bit of I'm being trying to be kind to him. Um, yeah. but he gets through an amazing amount of footy, his knowledge, his understanding of the game. And we got to the end of the, the first season, and I think this is a real a real testament to the lads that, that worked really hard for champs that played a lot of footy. George Skivington was our was our was our skipper, and Rousey got players player of the year. And George stood up and said, I've got no idea how this guy's not had a 10-year premiership career. And just what he put in, in his first year just, just proved that it was right that these guys had, had the dream and, and the ambition to aspire to be a better player and to get to the premiership. And, you know, 
guys like that are the reason why you do the job. And, you know, the, there's plenty of other stories of, of lads that, that, that have gone and, and, and done their thing. And, you know, Dave Ward out of the Pirates, you know, what a career he had. Matt Hopper at, at, at Quinns as well, you know, what a career he had. You know, Gareth Stinson, wow, you know, look what he's done. Um, and everything comes from that foundation of getting nothing for free. And yeah. I think that, that drove drove the hunger and, and drove the desire. Yeah. Were those, those, I mean, so many similar stories here in Bedford as well as a CME. I mean, uh, just think of people in all changing the world at those standards. You know, it's quite obvious at Bedford, you've got Paul Tupai uh, walking in the change room and, and George Cruz instantly, uh, you know, gets gets told where his place is, so to speak, and, and a development pathway for so many Saracens lads that have come through. And, and I'm seeing it right now with Saints players here as well. Um, you know, who who were those standard setters in 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 that changing room for you? Oh, the, 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 yeah, gee, was it was uh, well, Craig Hammond was the captain. You know, there were times when um, I'd get a bit pissed off or but asked about something, and, and I'd be speaking to Hammond and go, "Can you just give me five minutes before you come in?" And he'd deal with it. Um, but they were they were really comfortable calling each other out. Rousey was was you know the the standards they demanded from each other on and off the field because they had a lot of fun too. But the standards they demanded when they were playing were it was brutal. You either did your job or under no certain terms you knew that you weren't doing your job. And and but then the flip side of that was they were willing to help each other. So they they'd be they were hard on each other, but that helped. And and that, and that was part of them just getting better. But Hamo Hamo was driving the he drove the change room. Nick Rouse. Again, Matt Parr, those guys were were the heart and soul and, and, and the engine of of, of sort of, uh, of 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 the club. And and you know, if you needed a stern word, then Tim Molina was probably the guy you wanted to make sure you didn't cross cross because <laughs> he he was different. He was uh, he was an amazing athlete, and um, for him to be a midfielder and. You know, he wasn't afraid to speak his mind when it needed to be spoken, but um, he's the guy you want to run your team. So, you know, they had that 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 sort of culture of, of driving the standards. And the best part, again, was those, those dual ridge guys coming in, just fitting in. And you know, part of that continuity with Neil Fax being the, the most recent head coach, he was part of that team. Um, yeah. Hammer. Now, and, and going back to coach, I think that's something that, you know, for me, it was just my, it was always great that the ex-players would go and learn something elsewhere and then come back and give back to the club. And you know, I think that's that's going to continue. But um, yes, it was a tough old change here, that's for sure. Yeah, it was. Obviously, it uh, sounds like Nottingham are in safe hands with, with Hammond now coming back. So just to talk going, going forward, Glenn, uh, a little bit, and, and maybe your role seeing it on the other side at Irish and, and Scarlet's, how much is the championship at all for both recruitment or development for your players? So wearing your other hat, you know, you mentioned Rousey there, but also signing players. I mean, I'm not sure if it was maybe slightly after you with Irish, but James Stokes, uh, I think from Coventry to Irish. But, you know, looking at the championship as a player ball, how, how important do you see that? Well, I've always seen it as massively important. And, um, you know, London Irish, we, we, we took... You know, if we look at that straight away, it was, well, Scott Steele, Alex Lewington, Matt Parr, Nick Rouse, uh, Tom Cruise, they, they were the guys who went for because I knew they were hungry. And I was working with the DOR, Brian Smith at the time, who, who didn't necessarily know as well as I did. And I trusted that these guys could deliver it. And once we'd proven it, it was like, well, who else can we get? So then we got Fergus Mulcrone, Eamon Sheridan, you know, those sorts of guys that, that were playing well at Rotherham. Next thing, they're, um, they're playing in the Premiership and doing a great job. And you know, for me, I think it's it doesn't matter where the guys play. If they're good enough, they're good enough. And, uh, you know, you just can't – not everyone's in a premiership squad. And the one thing that, that premiership clubs would always get is great great return on investment for those guys because they're hungry. The premiership salaries were always a bit more inflated and the guys coming out of the championship would accept a bit less to do the job, which, you know, invariably was – 
more for them, but less on the on, on, on the slate the other way. And you always knew you were getting a player that was going to play above his book value. So yeah. got the right ones. That 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 was never ever an issue. And um, you know, even turning it around, you know, for the Scarlets the back into last season, I would loaned three guys um to Nottingham because they needed the exposure and um you know, one of the young props, Harry O'Connor, he's up against Saracens, and he's gone straight through Macca and Jamie George, and it's on his highlights, really. You know, <laughs> how much confidence does that give a young fella? I've just scrummed against the British Lions front row, and I did a right chat. You know, yeah. and he came back to the club, he's got Ken Owens, who's the Lions hooker, and Wynn Jones, the Lions Lucy, going, oh, you go right back here. You know, so there's a guy earning his corn. And he's done a hard one. And I still remember Ben Frank's talking to me around because he's, he's, he's coaching there. He was talking around his time. And he just goes, geez, I just had to put on about seven kilos because they were just so much bigger than I'd ever come up against. And it wasn't about the running around the field. It was about the stand, scrum and push. So, gee, you know, there was some, you know, there are some massive, massive units that can do a great job. And, now, for me, as a, as, a, as a place developing, always believed in it. So happy to get guys off, get them playing and, you know, and, and, and decision-making when I was recruiting, it was always a place I looked. Yeah, just just thought then about another player that Gully probably played with Irish now, Blair, Blair uh, I can't say his name, Blair Cowan. I mean, yeah. just incredible, got on to internationals and, and even at Scarlet's, I think he brought back Kieran Hardy. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. he's kind of got a Welsh gap now and going well from Jersey. So, yeah, no, yeah I, I think there's so many examples, aren't there? I mean, it, it's, it's just sometimes, I guess, Blair, and the, the leading question that we have to ask is why others maybe don't value it. Um, so I'm listening to you and I can see just the passion pouring out uh, of your voice really for it. But it feels at times maybe the RFU, maybe uh, the premiership clubs don't fully value it. Um, why Why would that be? I guess it depends on where they've come from. You know, have they come from that type of place where, you know, it's hard to get a roll of tape sometimes. You know, that, that sort of like, it's tough. And sometimes, so you know, when you're coming from the land of plenty, we just just write a check for something. And you know, we we had to be resourceful in that in that part of the world. You know, the championship it was like, well, okay, we've got to solve a problem this week, all right? And uh, how are we going to do that? And we find a way. And big borrows deal. That was just that's just what it is. Yeah. And that that just sort of grows a bit of resilience, but also a lot of respect because if you've got to work really hard for something, and you're you know with a few guys, then. Yeah, I'll take character and, and, and sort of work work ethic any day of the week over talent. I had I came, had a solution for the take problem at Amptil. It was still from Bedford. Gareth will hate that. You see? Just at the end of every season at Nottingham, Dave Jones, the kit man, had a challenge. At the end of every year, we had to have a ball from every club. And he delivered. <laughs> <laughs> and the name's on the ball, so we... It's in our bag. <laughs> I did worry about that. Uh, yeah, the um, the old physique management uh, bill and invoice that year. It was a bit strange. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that goal. Quite useful having a head of community slash part time amateur rugby player. Useful. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, we're talking about those examples. I mean, uh, one that does buck the trend slightly at the moment and doing a great job there is Lee Blackett and Wasps. I mean, you know, again, a lot of Nottingham people there. Folks come in, in as, I think, full-time scrum coach now, but Matty Everard, Costello moving on. Um, I think they've just announced Ed Robinson as the backs coach or, or meant to be coming in from Jersey. And so many players. I mean, we've heard the whole front row, Dan Frost, the Pirates, uh, Miller Mills from Elin, uh, Hislop from Doncaster. They've got our former nutter, Mike for Le Bourgeois in the centres. Um, what a haircut. What a <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, how, 
they're obviously seeing it as a massive and, and obviously it might be down to finances you're absolutely right you mentioned it let's not escape it that you know you're probably getting those players a little bit cheaper than Yalima, Sapoangas and, and, and whoever else so just talk to me a little bit I guess about what Wasps must see uh, in that but also I guess the value in premiership clubs investing in that area because surely EQP I know he obviously being a key Kiwi yourself but developing English qualified talent is surely what we should be about and what the RFU need at the top end. Of course, because you know if they're English qualified, then they can play for England. Um, you know, obviously, if they're if they're if they're not EQP, the funding issue kicks in, and you know that central funding is, is you know the game at the top level is, is big business, and you know the funding is, is business critical. And, and and having worked on that side of the fence, you go through the audits and all that, but you are literally counting your numbers to make sure you're going to hit your EQP targets. Because if you don't, then there's a massive hole in the finances. So. That's part of the, the challenge is how do you grow those guys? Because the instant fix or the band-aid solution for a premiership club is to, you know, off-season, go off to New Zealand, Australia, South Africa and uh, fly something in and, and that'll solve the problem. But I think if we take a longer-term view, and this is where for me this championship's been really important. And if you look at Wasps, and, and they've probably got a competitive advantage because of the fact that Lee's there and he's been around and done it. Fa- you know, Fax is going in, but Matty Everard's been around and done it. Um, if Ed Robinson's heading in there, then great. There's another guy with that exposure. Um, mm-hmm. Rich Blaze is at Leicester, and he's seen the dual registration stuff work. So all of a sudden, you've got a group of guys that have a you know aligned thinking, and that's the only thing that really makes the club work. Now, if you've got people who've never experienced the championship, well, they'll probably just look down their nose and go, ah, it's not up to much. But until you've been in it, you see what, what goes on and, you know, you, you understand it. And um, I think if you understand it, and Exeter certainly have, you know, you, you, again, you look at that, they've, they've done that. Quince, you know, a lot of clubs over the years have done it. And I think Conor O'Shea is obviously at the RFU now, but, you know, when he was coaching Quince, you know, I think he got Dave Ward and Matt Hopper up and they were outstanding for Quince. So there's always been a lot of belief in doing it. And I, I, just, I just hope that it's not going to stop because... You know, the finances of the game, you know, there's private equity funding coming in, the whole the whole landscape shifting. But you still need players to fulfill their tasks. And you're not going to want to throw away that EQP funding for anybody because I think all the clubs are going to need it. So growing them, well, it needs to be another competition that allows the players to come through a bit later because I don't think you can just rely on the academies to be that source. Just um, touching on the funding, Glenn, that's a bit, um, we, we don't actually know what the, the Prem clubs receive. But say we'll just pick, pluck a figure out that's maybe true, maybe not. But a, around around the say say four million, for instance. If I was to give you four million quid to build a squad in the championship, do you think it'd be able to compete within the prem? Yeah, yeah, I think with four million quid, I think you can. I think you you know the there's a disparity in the model, and I think it's how you spend it. It's not what you spend it on; it's how you spend it. And yeah. and I think you've got to have class and quality. You've got to have some, some genuine quality. Now that's always going to be a fairly narrow market, so the likelihood is it's going to be cost. You know, it's going to cost money. But if you're looking at fulfilling a squad with a profile of guys, I think you can, you can probably put a decent enough spread across a, a profile of a team. And, and and bear in mind, the vast majority of championship clubs will play premiership clubs in pre-season fixtures, and you know, we always did that to test ourselves and also to. Um, you know, hopefully from, from a Nottingham perspective, Leicester come up, we can have a crowd in there and it's all good. You know, we can make, make a couple of quid. It was a bit of a helping hand. So we were always testing ourselves against those guys and the games were always fairly, you know, fairly much in the balance. Where the game was, if you played, say, four quarters as an example, it would drop off at the back end when you made your changes and you're bringing on um, three lads from, from Nottingham University and, you know, she's just going through the floor of it because you're just like trying to protect the top end. And the Premiership Club can keep going with their stock players, and the score tended to just adapt a bit at the back end. 
Yeah. But when you were going four minutes against four minutes, it was it was almost in the balance. So I would say yes to answer the question. Yeah, yeah. four minutes put in the championship, I think you can build a really good competitive team. Yeah, as opposed to uh, was it 150 grand a year? <laughs> but that's just me being facetious. Yeah. Are you so. talking about your contract again? Leave it alone, mate. Poor old Jeff. Yeah, <laughs> that was over the whole career, Glenn. Oh, like, oh the career, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Over the career. <laughs> nine month contract that they had on there. That was the. the but anyhow, no. well, I mean, where, where do you where do you see that that future though, Glenn? I mean, look, you know, the genuine, you know, we joke around it, and uh, and you're right. I think the gullies is one of the bigger ones, but uh, you know, 150k now to fund a championship club. You know, our, our medical costs cost more than that without anything else. Um, yeah. And obviously, the sledgehammer came in during COVID, but it's now staying around at that funding point. I mean. I mean, it is completely disproportionate. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're happy to adapt. So as Bedford Blues are just us and you know, we, women part-time having worked really to get to fun, but probably three quarters kind of wrong. There's an attractive, we're putting together a very attractive squad. I think Mike and, and Alex Ray have done a brilliant job in the off-season um, yeah. and our culture will bring us through. But, you know, it is, it's tough. And that's for us as Bedford, who have a genuine sustainable business model around it. You know, what are the likes of Scottish, Richmond, Amptill that are, that are not gaining those other, you know, business operational or, or costs? And, and Nottingham, to a degree, you know, Smithy and the guys there are doing a great job. But, you know, it's tough work. So where does this end? You know, what what, what needs to change? You know, because it can't just be about funding every time. No, it can't. And I think that was the bit of umbrage that the RFU always had, is that we were always going cap in hand, give us more money, give us more money. And, you know, they were trying to put minimum standards in, which, you know, obviously I'm sure they've, they've kicked on a long way from where they were um if you looked at the the model this is going back we're trying to run a club this is a club entirety somewhere between 900 to a million quid a year as a business and you know i don't know whether that's changed you know markedly but if if you go back to the point the gully makes about the, the central funding being 150 if you're running a call it a 900 pound business that that leaves you quite a lot of change to find you gotta find 750 um and 750 is a lot of money so you know if you've got 500 to 1,000 people coming to watch you, that's not going to necessarily make it happen. Then you're relying on your commercial partners or benefactors or, you know, it's it's a tough route. And I think, you know, where did the central funding get? Did it give us about half a million or something? Is that roughly where it was? 660. So 660. So you start seeing that 660, if you're trying to run a 900 to a million pound business, well, I think the minimum standards can have a lot of obligation for that money. And actually, all of a sudden you think, well, if we've got to raise 250, on our own with our gate receipts. And, um, you know, I've been to Bedford. I used to take my son to Bedford for one of the Christmas games. It's four, four or 5,000. Brilliant day out. And, I, and I, I do remember looking at the ticket, I was looking at the till going, that's rand. Great, because you, you provided a product that people wanted to support. So if you're only having to find 250, 300,000 a year to make your business work, well, that's actually, you know, you can have a fair, a fair shot of that. I think that the challenge you have is if we're still trying to get the end product, which is EQP players in a sustainable competition that provides opportunity and also a, a place for as it was in the past that relegated team to, to function well then that's the purpose and, and and that's probably the challenge at the moment is what is the purpose of the championship going forward because it was always the aspiration was to get promoted all right so there's criteria that have gone into that and, and i think ealing have probably been through the order more recently and they're probably at the point of thinking well we want to have a crack at this well they're probably gonna have to make some shifts and what they're doing to, to, to tick all the boxes and even Exeter, when they were going through a way back when, had all manner of problems put in front of them. You know, they weren't that keen to have, you know, bear in mind the infrastructure and the investment Exeter had made at that stage was enormous and they had problems. So 
you know, it's a, it's a tough shop to get into. I can see it from the other side of the fence when you're looking at the investment of the product and the P-share holdings, and there's a massive commercial entity company that's built, which is probably worth somewhere in the vicinity of a quarter of a million quid. Sorry, sorry um, quarter of a billion. So about 250 million. If you add all the clubs together and what that, that business is worth, it's a big business. So for them to give up a bit of that for a team that's aspiring that hasn't made the jump, I think that's probably where their, their side of this coming from. But you know, to go down to the one fifty funding to come back to your point, Gully, I think it's it's probably suggesting that, you know, that reminds me of when division three or four got travelling expenses. You know, they dropped down to just travelling expenses. That's what it sounds like. And you know, that that to me looks like part time, you know, Tuesday, Thursday night rugby because how do you sustain it? Yeah. Absolutely, Dan. I think, and just not trying to grill you on the figures, but we talk about you know nine hundred to a million. I'm, I'm guessing I could be wrong, but at that time you're probably talking predominantly around the rugby-related costs. I mean, it's actually you know for for Bedford, for example, you know we're we're looking at a two million kind of minimum turnover to even get close to putting aside. That's not nowhere near the rugby budget. That's just the running costs of an operation of of this kind of size, and 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 we're definitely not one of the big spenders in the league. So you know it it is. Yeah, it, it becomes a very small fraction. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the thing is the purpose. So when, when we had the championship sold to us and, and we converted to it, it was all about developing English talent and and the pathway through. And and somehow that just got missed along the way. I think it just it, and all of a sudden the hammer blow to come down and go, we're going to turn this off now. And I was I was never party to the conversation, so I don't know. But it just seemed like, wow, where's this coming from? It's not like gradual, it's like done. And, uh, you know, it would have been, you know, would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in the conversation with the RFU and the, well, the RFU are part of it because it's their competition. So when you talk about the fight in the RFU, you're not. You should be fighting Premiership Rugby. But the RFU is part of, it's their, their competition, but it seems to me as though it was always the clubs against the RFU. So I'd love to have been a fly on the wall with some of those uh, chairman in the room who are, who are not short of mixing their words up in a, in a fairly fruity way um whether they got the answers i just don't know because i guess it's landed where it is so um it's going to be really interesting to see whether you know what the purpose of it is going forward oh my former chairman are they wanting uh promotion and, and professionalism with a capital p or a little p and uh, i think it's been probably answered right now in terms of, of where that funding is just Glenn, um, we we probably need to wrap up. But my final question would be, uh, where next for you, Glenn? Are you taking a bit of time away from the game? What's what's your plans? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm back at home for it, but I've been I've been out the you know on the road really for five years. So so living in, in London, but I've commuted to New Zealand for, for three of those, and then down to Wales for two. So I'm I'm actually quietly content being at home. Although um, I'm not too sure the fa- I think the family are quite ready for me to go. Again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, gee whiz, he's coming back. And what do you mean? There's rules. So it's like, uh, yeah, back on the daytime dad stuff. But uh, yeah, look, I'm, I'm just, I'm pretty comfortable being back and uh, and settling down for a bit and just recharging. And, you know, you never know where uh, where the wind blows and um, yeah, be, be back into it at some point in time. But right now, actually quite happy being at home. Future future host, I think, of Championship Clubs podcast. I think I've seen it already. <laughs> no, Knows no, more no. than all of us. Yeah. <laughs> I've got all the opinions, but no questions. I've just got opinions. So no, no, not for me. You guys are doing a great job. I, I just love the fact that you've um, you've taken the time to do it, and um, you know I think the audience is there, and and, and there are so there've been so many people that have been invested in this journey. And you know, my my mind started in two thousand three four. You think about where we are now. You know, there's a lot of people put a lot of time and sweat into this. So it's great that you're doing it, and um, you know, there's plenty of stories out there to tell. And uh, I know you you blokes will be hunting them down. So. Uh, I'll look forward to watching some more. Brilliant. Glenn, been a pleasure, mate. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, boys. Thanks, Glenn. That was the Championship Club Podcast with Michael Casey and Ben Gulliver. Check us out on social media at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter and subscribe and like our YouTube channel.